The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Up, episode 837 for Monday, October 12th, 2020. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where we take all your questions, all your tips, all your cool stuff found. We take the things that we've found. We take the things that we've learned and we mash it all together and mix it up into an agenda that we loosely follow with the occasional tangents, with the goal being that each and every one of us, you, me, him, we all each learn at least five new things. It can be different things. Like I can learn different things from you and him and like, it's all good. That's why we have lots of stuff in the show so that we can each hit our five without any trouble. Sponsors for this episode include, uh, two longtime sponsors, cashfly at mac.cashfly.com and bbedit, uh, at barebones.com and a new sponsor, but not a new company to most of us. Readle at readle.com. We will talk more about all of them later for now. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, tucked away in the TMO Tower studio, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Hey, man. How, uh, how goes it today? Everything? Uh, Everything's terrible. No, that's not good. We get to do a show. That's a good thing, right? I like that part mm-hmm. of the day. I like that part of the week. It's good. <clears throat> Everything else okay? Were you just being like... like like you said, everything's terrible. I mean, you know, <laughs> pand- pandemic wise, you know, yeah. I don't like it either, but you know, we don't really get to, we don't get to, anyway. Kurt, we have quick tips. I discovered a quick tip this week that I'm going to share too. Uh, Kurt will start us off though. Kurt says, I discovered by accident. Uh, suppose you are in the camera app on iOS, on app, you know, Apple's camera app. And you have just taken a photo. Sometimes you want to inspect the photo to see if it is to your liking. So you tap on the thumbnail. Now you are viewing the photo full size on your screen. To get back to the camera taking process, you could tap the back arrow in the upper left corner of your screen. Or you can simply swipe down in the middle of the screen. I find this much quicker. Requires far less precision than trying to tap that little back thing up in the corner. And it's important if you want to get back uh, because a fleeting because of a fleeting photo opportunity. Very cool. Yeah. I had no idea that this was doable. I don't know that I've done it before. It's one of, it could be one of those things that seems like an obvious sort of intuitive thing. Uh, so many of us probably do it. That's the beauty of these quick tips is, uh, is exactly that. So you, you rocked it, Kurt. Thank you. Very good. Did you know about that one, John? No. No? All right. Well, now, see, we're already up to one. We're at one. This is great. I'm going to give you two, John. One thing that drives me crazy, and I was not looking for a solution to this problem, which is probably why I found it. The one thing that drives me crazy is uh, on the Messages app, and this solution only works on my Mac, so if you know of one for the phone, please tell us. Feedback at MacGeekCab.com. On the Messages app, it will tell you how many messages there are in a, you know, in how many new messages, unread messages, I should say, not necessarily new, unread mm-hmm. messages with a little badge. Uh, and there is no way of seeing just the unread messages, at least that I know of. Now, on the Mac, I found all by accident 
if I control click on the messages icon while messages is launched, it will show me in the little, like it, I'm going in the dock on the messages icon, control click, right click, whatever, you know, double tap click, whatever, you know, whatever your alternate click methodology is. And there's probably a quick tip baked in there somewhere too. With messages open, it will show you which groups or individual messages have unread and how many are unread in any given group. And now I see a message from a friend of mine that's probably three weeks old that I had no idea about. So that's awesome. But I will address it later because I'm doing a show now and I'm going to quit messages again because, you know, yeah, dicey. Uh, did you know about that, John? No. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you do you, myself a message? <laughs> do you know how to do that on iOS? Because I don't. So I'm hoping somebody out there does and will email us because that would be good. Right. Right. And they should email us. I, I think you said feedback at MackieGab.com, Dave. I did. That's what I said. Yeah. I said feedback at MackieGab.com. Uh John, before the show started, you and I were talking. I was ranting about how I was having some time machine problem or another and with my scheduling. And you talked about your scheduling for Time Machine. We both use Time Machine Editor for our scheduling, but you do something very specific with it. Tell us what you do. Well, at least on the mini. So the 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 mini is is the podcasting rig here. And um so normally, this machine, when I'm not podcasting or gaming, um, is asleep. Um, but the way I'm set up here, Dave, is that I use Time Machine Editor, and they have a number of options in it, and one is Calendar Interval. So what I have is uh, I schedule an event every day at 3 a.m. and say, do your thing. Um, and it works on this machine because this machine has PowerNap. And one thing that PowerNap can do is do a time machine backup um, in the background. Um, I also have a carbon copy cloner thing set for 2 a.m. so they don't fight with each other. Ah, right. So they're not so that's why trying to backup at the same time. Got it. Yep. Right. So that's the way I'm set up on this machine. My MacBook Pro is a little different. That one I actually have set up, Dave. Um, so Time Machine Editor has another setting. And um, so on my MacBook Pro, I have it set for when inactive. Mm, just because. Yes, right. The machine's usually on um, during the day, whereas this one's not. Yeah, that and that's what I and then I manually and I manually do the carbon copy cloner also on my MacBook Pro. I do that manually or actually I have it set up to do it at 2 p.m. every Sunday. And if the drive's not plugged in, it throws an error and okay. reminds me that I should. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So if, if it, so it's set up, if if my backup drive is plugged in, it'll it'll start it at, at uh, 2 p.m. Otherwise it yells at me and then I have to plug the drive in. Okay, but at least you get a notification about it. I, I, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, interesting. So- Yeah, because you were having, you, you always seem to have these processes like, uh, and your favorite is uh, uh, Photo D. Well, it was Photos Library D that was running in the background today. Your and then I also library. realized that my time machine was trying to run it. I'm like, I know that I have time machine editor 
to run when inactive, but also not between the hours of 9 a.m. and 8 p.m. on this machine. And that serves me well. Mm -hmm. The trick with Time Machine Editor, which is a third-party scheduler, is that you have to turn off the first-party scheduler, a.k.a. Apple's scheduler, and they don't entirely make this clear. You have to go into System Preferences Time Machine and uncheck the backup automatically box. That simply is Apple's hourly scheduler. And evidently, I've had it on for quite some time. So, uh, or some time, I don't know how how long is quite. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure, it, I'm sure it got turned on when I had to fix the time machine backup and delete and re-add. I'm sure it was like, oh, well, we should schedule this for you. But but that overrides or runs, it, I don't think it overrides. I think it runs in parallel to anything Time Machine Editor does. But it, Time Machine Editor cannot stop it. You have to turn it off. So, um, so anyway, but you're right about PowerNap. Uh, and I guess we still call it PowerNap. I thought that Apple had changed the name of it, but it's still listed as PowerNap and Energy Saver. Uh, but uh, with when we had Mike Bombick on the show, he taught us that if you go into your Carbon Copy Cloner tasks and you click on the schedule or edit the schedule for your task, um, you can have it not wake up the screen by by essentially leveraging power nap where you in the system sleep section of the schedule for any given task you can tell it to wake the system you can tell it to wake or power on the system and then the option he taught us to choose is run this task when the system next wakes and that way it's if it's woken by power nap power nap wakes it without waking the screen and this is a wonderful thing so that's uh that's how we, at least that's how I use Carbon Copy Cloner. And that way you don't have a big screen on and, you know, all that stuff. So anyway, John, you have another quick tip from listener Neil, I believe. Yes, we do. So, um, so Neil says on the last episode, there was some talk about using BB edit to allow searching through large amounts of text or program output, which is very handy given BB edits ability to handle huge amounts of data. Often, I might take the output of a command line tool and pipe it to various utilities, including grep to search for certain content. But the problem with grep is that you don't see the entire context of the matched lines. Uh, yes, you can show lines before and after, but it's not necessarily the same view. Often, I will therefore pipe the output of the command to bbedit, which is very handy for capturing what could be lengthy output and then being able to review and search it easily. For example, ls space dash l space vertical bar space bb edit um ls being of course the uh, uh list files right man right right um so i tried it and it didn't work oh okay <laughs> at first uh well here's here's what you got to do with bb edit is you have to install the command line tools. It, it does not do that by default. Right. So, right. So once I did that and installed BB edit for the command line, and then there's a few other things that I got to um, fiddle with, but it also installs three other things. BB diff, which I'm going to assume compares two things and shows the difference. BB find and BB results. So that's, uh, that's going to be my homework to, See what those can do for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Huh. 
Yeah, I love those BB Edit command line tools. I've I've been using those for a while, and um, and it's I, what I love about it is if I'm in the terminal and I want to edit a text file, I just type BB Edit and the name of the text file instead of like VI or Nano or you know whatever. And now I'm editing in BB Edit with my mouse and all that good stuff. So yeah, it's good stuff. I like it. I like it. All right. Uh, where are we here? We have some tips slash follow-ups from recent episodes, and we will start with Travis, who has an answer, perhaps a final answer, I hope, to the unlocking problem that we talked about uh, with Dan last week, getting his Mac to unlock with his Apple Watch. Uh, Travis says, I ran into this exact same issue with two of my Macs, and the only thing that worked was following the steps that he found in a knowledge base article at Apple's site, to which we will link. And the steps are, you don't have to take notes. They are listed happily in this article, which is linked from our show notes, macgeekab.com. And if you go there, you can sign up to get the show notes delivered straight to your email. Open keychain access. In view, enable show invisible items. Search for auto unlock. And then you should see a whole bunch of auto unlocks. Select them and delete them. This will reset slash disable auto unlock on your other Macs if you use multiple Macs. While still in keychain access, search for auto unlock with no space. There should be four entries, he says, and delete those. Uh, open the finder and navigate to home library sharing auto unlock. There should be two files. Delete those and they're listed there. Uh, and then open system preferences and try re-enabling auto unlock. You may need to enable it twice. The first attempt will likely fail. He says, after I did the first Mac, I did not fully clear the auto unlock sand space entries in the keychain on my second Mac. I left the new entries created from the first Mac. Also, the first time I tried this, I had to forget the Wi-Fi network on my watch and rejoin. And then it worked. So thanks for that, Travis. That's helpful to know, man. I love finding these needles in the the haystack. And as, as Kiwi Graham pointed out in our chat room at live.macgeekup.com, uh, keychain show invisible items. Talk about a hidden quick tip in there. I had no idea that existed either, which is what he was saying in the chat room. So I like it. This is great little tips. This is how we keep from having to, you know, we were talking, I guess it was last week, right? Where I was saying, lamenting that so many, so often the solution is like, well, nuke and pave. It's like, yeah, but I hate that. Mm. I want to, I want to find the needle in the haystack and just fix it quick. Everything's easy if you already know the answer. Now we're knowing the answers. Any thoughts on that, John, before we, uh, before we keep on cooking here? Nope. All right. Uh, also, last week, we were speaking of Kiwi Graham from the chat room. Uh, last week, we were talking. I was talking about debugging my uh, iPhone and not really having the things that I wanted. Uh, there's no activity monitor on my iPhone that is any, of any use. And Graham says, uh, I thought I'd share or remind that for debugging purposes, one can see the live console log via iMazing. Uh, as per any console, there will be lots of messages that aren't of interest, but there is a little filter slash search field that lets a geek uh, hone in on the suspect, the suspect processes. I've recently been using this to try and work out why my iMazing backups have been hanging. Uh, and he found that there's some bug that was causing his health data to swell up and say that it was 1.6 terabytes of data. 
his phone is not that large unless he knows someone that we do not. But uh, I think I think it's just a bug in, in 1401 or, or on his phone for some reason. But this was super helpful. A, this does one of the things that I was hoping to be able to do, which is to see any of this diagnostic information while not attached to power, because that's the key to seeing what the phone's doing when it thinks it's not doing anything. And so I did that with amazing. In fact, my phone was in my pocket, so it wasn't even the screen wasn't even on. I had not woken it up in quite a while. I was just sitting at my desk answering some Mac Geek mail and uh, and I immediately was able to pull up the log. And as you would expect, as Kiwi Graham cautioned, it, you know, there was just stuff like flying across the screen, but there's a pause button. So that's helpful. And, you know, I, I wanted to get a feel for what, you know, normal looks like, because that's how we best troubleshoot. And I saw two things running that I still haven't sorted out. Um, one was that install D was saying failed to retrieve the IO service matching the device node for private. I don't know what private is. It's, it's like hidden. Uh, and then also along with that uh, was container manager D saying things uh, that were either errors or success. Like there were some weird things. So it feels like maybe there's a, a stuck install or something, which is entirely possible. I have a lot of apps on my phone. I probably need to start my new iPhone with, uh, with, you know, just nothing and manually kind of put things on it and set it up. I think that's, I think that's what I'm going to do a for these kinds of things, but also B so I can leverage my, I can, I can start fresh with a home screen and, and sort of leverage everything that's in iOS 14. Speaking of new iPhones, Apple's announcement is uh, Tuesday. We will be doing a special episode right after that. So, uh, so tune in for that. You can, you can watch us record it live.macgeekup.com and, uh, and, and, or, you know, we'll put it out on all the feeds like you're, like you're used to. But I did notice something on my phone, John, while I was looking through these logs and it said it was uh, here D H E A R D which in parentheses, the log says hearing utilities. And it said um, uh, availability and it was looking for HC message device name key David's hearing aids. Now, longtime listeners will remember that I tested out those Sigma uh, hearing aids. I forget the model number. I will. I will look it up while we were while we are talking here. But I thought, man, I haven't used those in a long time. What the heck is this? It was the Sig Signia. I said Sigma. Sorry, Signia Pure Charging Go Seven NX. So I'll, I'll put that in the show notes if anybody's interested because they, they were fantastic. Uh, really had some fantastic features and really you know excellent iPhone integration. Um, but I had not used these in a very very long time. I tested it out and then that was that. And, um, I thought, well, that's interesting. So I looked in Bluetooth devices to see if it was, you know, looking for, if it was there, no, not there. I thought, well, but clearly my phone knows about this. In fact, I don't even think I had tested it with this phone. I think it, it you know, came across as cruft with a migration. Sure enough, I searched in settings for hearing aid and I found it. Um, I should bring my phone back up here. In accessibility, my uh, uh, hearing devices, I think, is where it was. And sure enough, there it was listed. So I removed that. And maybe that'll help my battery life if it's not looking for a device. I can see why 
an iPhone would be very eager to find these hearing devices. And that would be important to you if you had that. But if you don't have that and it's still looking, maybe it's burning some extra CPU. So this, uh, uh, this this log, you know, can be helpful. Um, still, a new conveyor might be the easiest answer, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I already found one thing, and I'm curious to see if if my battery life is generally impacted, hopefully in a positive way, by by removing this uh, this thing from there. So yeah, hmm. I know, I know. You had a tip, John, yeah. from uh, go. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, did you have? Oh, the well, the one thing. Um, uh, at one point, maybe you can't anymore, but I thought you were able to use Apple's console to look at what was happening with a connected iPhone. Connected. I think that's the key. I don't think Apple's utility will show you logs for a, a not, not USB connected phone. Oh, all right. Well, I maybe it will. I was able to do that once. May, yeah, maybe it does. I, 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 yeah, you could, you could entirely be right about that. I I didn't think it would show me it if it wasn't connected via USB. And of course, mm -hmm. then you get all the things that are going to happen when it's plugged into power, and that starts to get at at best, can you know, confusing and and perhaps even misleading because there's things an iPhone will do on power that it will not do when it's running on battery because it's mm -hmm. you know it's trying to be conservative with power, which it should be. All right. Uh, All you right. Take us to Martin. And Martin has a follow-up, I guess. Um, you mentioned SD cards in the show. I had one break open the other day and was most surprised to find the read-write tab was not electrically connected to the small chip inside. That would explain uh, John's writing to the device while in the read-only position. Mm. As he said, it's down to the host uh, whether it obeys the request or not. Um, so yeah, don't buy cheap SD cards. <laughs> yeah. Um, in my case though, it actually was one of my docs that was not honoring or looking for this signal. One of mine did and one of mine didn't. I don't know. I should <clears throat> write to anchor about that. <clears throat> yeah. See what the deal is. Interesting. Or maybe it was just a one-time weirdness. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Cool. Kiwi Graham does confirm that um, the Mac OS console does show the iPhone console log for Wi-Fi stuff. So yeah, you're totally right, John. That's great. All right. Well, that's good to know. So you don't necessarily even need iMazing to, to be able to do that kind of troubleshooting. Why, why can't it just show me activity monitor? Like I would like we're, we're steps mm -hmm. away. Ah, uh, well, all right. Uh, where are we on time here? We have some questions. We have some cool stuff found. We have some Wi-Fi stuff. Uh, let's, let's, let's go through our questions. I think these are going to be relatively quick here. Um, Philip asks John, he, well, he was specifically asking something, but he says, um, he says, since uh, where he says, I'm looking for a weather app that has a widget that can be put in the uh, notification center or in the iOS 14 widgets. Does anyone know if dark sky has this feature uh, right now? I use hello weather on my phone and this is interesting. I have lots of weather apps on my phone because I test lots of things and I only found uh, one weather app 
on my phone that has a widget, and that is Apple's weather app. I don't like Apple's weather apps widget because it doesn't give me enough information. So I use widget Smith, which does allow me to create and craft and hone my own weather widget, which I have in a smart stack on my phone. And it, it, it gives me exactly what I want. It tells me if it's the percentage of rain or percentage of precipitation, presumably right now it's just rain and then high and low temperature for the day. And it color codes each day for a seven day week, uh, which is exactly what I, what I want to see. So, but yeah, I have on my phone, I have dark sky, no widget and no widget for any of these rain viewer, air visual, which I realize isn't quite weather, but still no widget snowflake storm radar. And then my personal favorite weather app, which is Wonderground uh, by weather underground. So, uh, and I don't, the only widgets I'm offered are Apple's weather app or widget Smith. So if anybody knows of weather apps that have widgets, let us know. Uh, maybe somebody will even let us know in the, in the chat. And if they do, we'll put them in the list here. So yeah, there you go. Now we'll put widget Smith down. All right. Uh, John, you have a question from Joe. Yes. Um, so Joe writes, hi guys, a potential stump the geek question. Um, I need a lightning port doubler. Everything I can find uses the second lightning port only for charging. I need one that is fully functional for both ports. This may not be electrically or functionally possible, hence the stump the geek. Why, you ask? Good question. When I travel, I carry a SanDisk iXpand thumb drive with about 100 movies on it for watching when away from home. This works great when on a plane, but the problem comes when I'm in a hotel or somewhere and want to send the uh, video out via HDMI. Uh, there are AV adapters with lightning to HDMI, but once this is plugged in, there is no way to connect the SanDisk device. As I mentioned, port doublers or AV adapters are plentiful, but all of them use the second lightning port just for supplying power. I used to be able to, uh, I used to be able to plug in the SanDisk so on the, the iPad can read the movies and simultaneously then output the video to the HDMI for sending to a TV. Um, I suspect the design of the lightning interface is the limiting factor here. So again, my stump the geek question on how to solve. Um, I've copied files to the iPad, but you know, that gets, gets kind of old. So he prefers to play them off of the, uh, hmm. the flash drive. Um, I've, I've also considered, um, traveling with an Apple TV and, uh, just beaming the video, <laughs> which you can do. Yeah. Um, that would be one solution. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that adds bulk and weight. So any ideas would be appreciated. So I broke out the Google food, Dave, and I think I found uh, a potential way to solve this now. So first, um, you, you may ask yourself, not only how do I work this, but uh, nice reference. Um, um, but you may ask yourself, what is a lightning port really? And, you know, I looked at the pinouts. Um, lightning is basically a USB port, Dave. Provides power and provides data and it's USB. Well, you can verify this because if you have something 
lightning base plugged into your machine and you look in system info, you're going to see at some point the uh, USB link speed, either USB 2 or probably USB 2 or USB 3. Um, and then I found a dandy article which offered a suggestion here. So since this is really a USB port, Dave, um, I found something at Cult of Mac uh, from a couple of years back. The title being how to use a USB hub to hook up multiple devices to your iPad. So, um, and they suggest a powered hub would allow the connection of multiple devices. Um, but I'm wondering if the root of their solution would also do this. And I don't think it would on its own. And the root of their solution is the lightning to USB three camera adapter. Right. Right, which, right. As you can imagine, has both a lightning port on it and a USB A port. Um, and the iXpand drive that he has is uh, similar. The one I have is that one end of it is a, a lightning port and the other is a USB A port. So, um, yeah. And it, yeah, the feedback was uh, the Sandus I expand is the same one I have, but near as I can tell in testing, the USB only works when connected to a computer. It doesn't even work in TVs with USB. Um, and the Apple device is essentially what he has, except his has an HDMI port. Yeah, that was another thing I learned. Once I, I looked at this Lightning to USB 3 camera adapter on the page, on that same page, it says, oh, by the way, here's another adapter. Um, which they call, I think it's the digital video, um, digital video adapter. But they also make an adapter that has both an HDMI port and a lightning port on it. So, right. so I think what'll work is... But I, I think the adapter with the HDMI and lightning is only to provide power in via lightning at that point. I think it's the same issue because you're using the data portion, like it's, it breaks out power mm -hmm. versus data, right? At that point. And so you get data mm -hmm. to the HDMI. And, and I think you're right that lightning is mostly USB. I, I, I don't, I know that lightning can also pass. I know lightning can't pass audio. You might be right that it's just USB. Um, the certainly on the, uh, new iPads, and when I say new, I mean relatively new in that they have USB-C ports on them instead of lightning ports. On those, it's very, very easy to connect a dock to them, a USB-C dock, and do all the things that you want to do and more, right? In fact, there are some USB-C mm. docks that are built specifically form factor-wise for the iPad, but any of them in general at least will work. Uh, in terms of the phone, I, I think you... I think you would, would go with the lightning to USB three camera adapter because that just gives you, that turns your lightning port into a USB a port and then you connect a hub to it and go from there. I, mm -hmm. I think that's the path here. Uh, Brian Monroe in the, in the chat room confirms this. He says, yeah, just use the USB a port and, and break it out from there and you're good to go. Cause you can pass power in, you can pass data across it. It, you know, it, it opens that world up. So that, that's the answer for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Cool. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. So it's not really doubling it, but it is converting it to something that you can then double. If that makes sense. I mm -hmm. hope I, I know they're, they're thicker and all that stuff, but I, I would love to live in a world where my phone had a USB C port and I could be done with lightning ports, but, um, I don't think that world starts Tuesday. Yeah. I don't think. 
based on what, you know, the rumor mill tells us. So, Mm -hmm. but maybe someday, maybe we can hope. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, John. Thanks, Joe. Uh, One last quick sort of general question here from listener, Mike, we were talking about relaying at our home screens and all that stuff. And, uh, Mike says, before I updated, the phone icon was on the first screen next to Safari messages and music icons. Now it is on the last screen of seven. And it's current lo- in its current location, it is inconvenient to use. Yeah, understandably. He says, is there any way to move it back to the first screen? So, yes, there's a, f- a few ways. And, and one of them, I think, is going to be the, the, the trick. Uh, so go to the screen with the phone icon and then tap and hold to get it into jiggly mode. Right. Uh, and from there you could do the, you know, painful procedure of dragging across each of your seven screens until you get back to the home screen. That's not my favorite way to go. Um, if you're using iOS 14 with the app library, you could go and turn off all, but the first screen, and then get it from the app library and just drag it over. But that now requires you turning things off and on. My favorite way is to make sure you have at least one opening in your phone's dock and drag the phone icon down to the dock, swipe over to the first screen, drag it up from the dock to where you want it. And the dock acts as a nice little holding pattern and you don't have to drag from screen to screen to screen. So those are, I don't Those are my favorite ways. Do you have any others, John? No, that's, that's a work for me. There you go. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Uh, we have some cool, cool stuff found to talk through. We have, uh, all kinds of things to talk through. The, f- the next thing that I want to do though, John, if, uh, if it works for you is I want to talk about our sponsors for today. Cool. All right. Our first sponsor is certainly not a new company to anyone who has listened to this show for any length of time, but they are a new sponsor for us, and it's Riedel at R-E-A-D-D-L-E dot com. Riedel has been making apps on the App Store since the App Store opened day one 12 years ago. Over 150 million people have downloaded their apps, apps like Spark, Scanner Pro and PDF Expert have all been highlighted with the editor's choice distinction by Apple. PDF Expert won app of the year from Apple. They're a self-funded company with over 200 people. They know how to make apps that solve your problems. Documents is one of those apps that we talk about all the time. It is you know, it's, it's all your files all in one app. That's what they say, right? You know, and, and it's true. They have added so many iOS 14 widgets with their apps, documents, which I just mentioned, has widgets for recent and favorite files, widgets for music, widgets for file actions, right? PDF expert, widgets for recent and favorites, their calendars app that's simply called calendars. There's widgets for events, tasks, and conference calls. These things look fantastic on the iPhone. Very cool stuff. You've got to check it out. And they're great people too. Readle, R-E-A-D-D-L-E dot com. I know you've seen their apps before. Take another look. Dig a little deeper. Readle.com. Our thanks to Readle for sponsoring this episode. Next up, Barebones Software. You know about BB Edit. And of course, you know about BB Edit 13.1. Because BB Edit 13.1 completely revamped their markdown preview. 
which is such an important thing. Markdown is such a valuable language for describing the way you want things to look, right? It's way easier to think in than HTML, I think. And it's easier to read, really, is the, the reality. And they've revamped their previews, so it happens a whole lot better. In fact, they've revamped previews for a lot of things, and you should check that out for sure. There's a new run Unix command command, right? So that you can run Unix commands right there within BB Edit. You can run a Unix command to do something to your data, to your drive. Really cool. And of course, HTML tidy has returned. Yes, it's the tidy suite of commands for HTML and XML, including things like reformatting, correcting simple errors, and checking web accessibility. So go check this out. I know we went through some of the geekier things in BB Edit this time around. That's okay. You know, we can be geeks. We can not be geeks. The tools apply regardless. And that's one of the things I love about BB Edit is I can do all kinds of different things, including the geeky stuff. Go check it out. Barebones.com. Our thanks to Barebones and BB Edit for sponsoring this episode. And now we get to talk about Cashfly. You know, we have been using Cashfly here at MacGeekGav, I want to say, for 14 of our 15 years, maybe even longer than that. Cashfly, we say it at the end of every episode, Cashfly are the ones that provide the bandwidth to get the episode from us to you. And they do it efficiently. They do it quickly. They are great partners. It's a wonderful company and a wonderful service. They know what they're doing in terms of getting data to people. Well, they also know what they're doing when it comes to making sure data gets to people quickly. And that includes not just raw data like your media files, but also your website. They've got their own web content optimization solution that links in with your engines, your website, and delivers it quickly to people everywhere. You know how important it is to have a fast-loading website. If it loads slowly, Google will forget about you. No one will find you. That's bad. Well, the good people at Cashfly know how to do this, and they're even going to provide a free optimization consultation for you just for being a Mac Geek Ab listener. Yep, just for you. You can know exactly where your site stands today with a Lighthouse score report and then learn how Cashfly's web optimization solution can help add 60 points instantly to your score. This is 60 out of 100. So, yeah, yeah, most of us have websites in the, you know, 10 to 15 range. You definitely want to bump that number up. Visit mac.cashfly.com. That's M-A-C.C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. Our thanks to Cashfly for providing the bandwidth to get from us to you and for sponsoring this episode. All right, cool stuff found time, and I'm going to start with Anchor's uh, new charging survival kit, specifically, though, in their charging survival kit. So they've got um, uh, their PowerPort 3 2-port 60-watt uh, connector. It's got two USB-C power delivery ports, obviously, on it, and it's got two cables, a USB-C to USB-C cable for charging and a USB-C to lightning cable for charging. So super handy stuff, but... What it has that's really cool is the new Anchor Nano, or as they call it, the Anko Anchor PowerPort 3 Nano. This is a um, charging block the same size as the little tiny little charging block that you get with your phone, right? The, the little tiny one that, you know, you just like sits on the wall and takes up just one outlet and all that stuff. It has, they say that it has 18 watts of power in it, thanks to uh, gallium nitride, right? 
But when I plugged it in, John, I tested it. I mean, I tested it with all my devices, but I thought, will this thing charge my laptop? Because an 18 watt adapter will not. Well, a 20 watt adapter does. And that's what this thing advertises itself as. So I know they don't, they probably don't say that it will charge a MacBook Air, but it will charge a MacBook Air in my experience, which is really cool to be able to do that with the tiny little, you know, single outlet wall adapter. So yeah, you can get the PowerPoint 3 Nano separately from them and like for like 20 bucks. And then, like I said, it's, it's included in this, um, what do they call it now? I, I lost the name of it. The charging, oh man, uh, charging survival kit. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, very, very cool stuff for sure. Awesome. You want to take us to Martin for cool stuff found, John? Yes. Um, so, uh, this is something I have never used, but it's, um, um, it's called Enhancer for YouTube, and it uh, does a whole bunch of things. It's like a Swiss Army knife here. Uh, so it does ad removal, uh, playback speed control, playback quality, volume control, auto pause, and preloading. And I'm not going to read the rest, but uh, it looks like it does a lot of stuff. Wow. Uh, I guess the only bad news is that um, it's for Chrome, Edge, and Firefox, and Opera, not Safari. So makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But that's cool. Oh yeah. Okay. So it's not just a Firefox extension. It's, it's the, um, it's for, like you said, many browsers, mm -hmm. huh? Controlling the speed of playback. I can see that being helpful, especially if you're like watching this show on our YouTube channel, which you should subscribe to. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend it. Uh, great content as you know. All right, cool. Uh, Scott, brings us we were talking a few episodes ago he says about the benq screen light bar and he says i couldn't help but jump in with this recommendation uh it is the uh lofter l-o-f-t-e-r screen light bar e-reading led task lamp with no glare on screen usb powered monitor for home office etc etc you know how those amazon descriptions are they are stacked with keywords but uh, but yeah, sure enough. And it's just thirty nine bucks on Amazon. It's a bar that goes across the top of your screen, kind of sits up there like a balances up there like a webcam might. And uh, yeah, there you go. So very cool. Thank you, Charles. We like uh, we like those things. He 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 loves his. And it, it is uh, you can adjust the color temperature on it, which is key for especially for like, you know, webcam stuff and all that. Uh, it's good to have the light balance. Speaking of webcams, John, I have been interested in finding a webcam uh, that is not Logitech branded. Not that there's anything wrong with the Logitech stuff. It's just that for a time, uh, especially during the pandemic here, they were real short on stock, like so short. We couldn't even get Logitech corporate to send you a camera like they just did not have them. So I was like, well, wait, you know, they're clearly not the only people that make webcams. And so I've been checking out a few and one that really has risen to the top. I've checked out some that are crap, folks, by the way. This is not one of them, um, but it's Ausdom, A-U-S-D-O-M. It's a $90 camera, 1080p, 30 frames per second. That's really the 30. The frames per second is what you what we as Mac users care about because our phones and our iPads have 30 frame per second cameras. Our Macs have 15 frame per second cameras with all, but doesn't the iMac Pro have a 30 frame per second camera in it? Like it drives me crazy, but it, it really makes you look kind of choppy and weird and crappy. 
it, it's a noticeable difference when you go above 15 frames a second. And, uh, and so this one has it. It's got uh, multiple micro. It's got a microphone array on it, and the sound is good. We do family Zoom calls with our kids every week, and we generally do them from the house uh, on Lisa's machine. So we are using the mic that's in the webcam, as opposed to like when we record this show, we're using you know the mics that are that we have because they're nicer. But you know, it's a very like an hour long call. People will tell you if it sounds like crap, especially if they're your kids. And and so this has been a good testing ground for us and uh and the microphone array on this is great it picks up everything it filters out background noise in a nice way uh obviously it works with you know all the things it is just a, a webcam so that it, well, i'll throw that in there again you know just looking for brand alternatives so that so that we're you know not stuck in tunnel vision here which no pun intended and austin definitely delivers so yeah good thoughts on any of that john before uh before we move on, no, I didn't know the uh, I don't know I didn't know the camera on the Mac was so. You're saying the camera on the MacBook is kind of wimpy. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. <clears throat> Fifteen frames a second. Yeah, it's awful. They they all are. I don't know why Apple does this. I mean, like every other, not every other, most Windows laptops have thirty frame per second cameras in them, which is great. It, it's a remarkable difference. Like if you're zooming with somebody and they're on their Mac using the built-in camera versus using like their iPhone when they, you know, like if our kids are like, Oh, we'll use, I'll use my iPad today. It's like, Oh, they look, they look so much better. So now I get to send them all webcams, but yeah, that's fine. It's oh, good. That's, yeah. Yeah. Mac tracker doesn't. Yeah. I'm looking here. It says, so like my MacBook pro, all it says here is 720p, but it doesn't, it doesn't offer the frame rate. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's limited at 15, which stinks. So yeah, not good cameras built into Macs in general. All right. Uh, a, well, let's see. We will go to Paul here and Paul brings us uh, two cool stuff founds. He said, I want to send in a couple of cool stuff's found suggestions. The first of which is an app called when did I Unfortunately, it has a really ugly icon, but I'm finding its functionality very useful, especially with everything that's going on at the moment. Essentially, it lets you set up and record when you've last done something. For example, he says, I use it to tell me when I last changed my ring doorbell battery. I have it tell me when I rebooted my router, cleaned out my gutters, changed the water in the fish aquarium, downloaded data from my bank. With COVID, he says, I even use it to remind myself when I last used one of the three masks that I have in rotation. It keeps a record of these actions over time, and the data can be edited if you forget to log your action in the moment. Very handy. <clears throat> so thank you for that. That's great. Um, yeah, I like it. When did I? Cool. He says that the second thing uh, is as a comment. Uh, to, oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, where are we here? But da, da, da. Oh, for, the second thing is you mentioned that Pixelmator Pro was good for images, but I don't think you mentioned the app's secret trick. If you're using Pixelmator Pro, you can switch it to become Vectormator simply by pressing Command-Shift-V keyboard shortcut and watch the tools and palettes instantly change to Vectormator, meaning it becomes a vector design tool instead of a pixel design tool. Switch back to your Pixelmator with photos, press the same keyboard shortcut again. Very cool. I, I always forget that I have this vector editing app in my, I mean, I'm running Pixelmator Pro 
all the time on my Macs. I don't have it running now because it you know takes up RAM in this things, so I, I don't run it while we're doing the show. But it is the thing I use to craft the show notes. That's for sure. So yeah, very very or to craft the show images, I should say, not the not the notes that that I use BB Edit for. But uh, but yeah yeah cool. Thanks, Paul. Thoughts on any of that, my friend? Moving on. Moving on. Moving on up. All right. It's uh, time for some Wi-Fi stuff, John. we got plenty of time. We will let Michael ask this first question and uh, take it away, Michael. Hey, John and Dave. This is Michael calling in from uh, Long Beach. Hot as heck, California. Question for you. I have a TP-Link Deco 5 mesh system in my home. Uh, I have one in the living room kind of where the coax jack is uh, and, you know, I have my TV plugged in via Ethernet, uh, fire stick plugged in via Ethernet, et cetera. Then I have one in my bedroom and then I have one in my home office, uh, two satellites. But I'm wondering is, is there any benefit to plugging in uh, my computer and my wife's computer? She's in the bedroom working. I'm in my home office working. Is there any benefit to plugging into those satellites via Ethernet cable? Will there be more reliability? I mean, I don't think there'll be speed increases, but will there be more reliability is what I'm wondering. Because, um, you know, it'll drop off occasionally, a lot of lag on Zoom calls, that sort of thing. That's what I'm wondering. So thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, good question, Michael. In, in You know, every situation can be different, right? So it's impossible, we always say, to truly diagnose specific Wi-Fi stuff uh, remotely without being there and trying. Because even when you're there, you don't know if something's going to work because you can't see the radio waves and what's interfering with them. However, along those lines, yeah, in general... If you turn your computers from being Wi-Fi devices into not Wi-Fi devices, then you theoretically are imposing less interference, less uh, scenarios where the where your your deco, your mesh access point has to. You're doing what's called multi-hop, right? Where you're you're Wi-Fi hopping to the deco, and then the deco is hopping back to the source. So if you can eliminate one of those hops by plugging directly in, then yeah, you eliminate some latency, but you also give the deco the opportunity to focus its Wi-Fi on the, uh, you know, on its backhaul as opposed to the, the front hall to you. So yeah, it probably would make things better. I always recommend if you're doing, you know, a satellite, uh, you know, a mesh satellite to say your TV uh, scenario, uh, you know, to, from from wherever your router is to your TV or to your home office or whatever, then plug things in Ethernet to that. In in fact, even get an Ethernet switch uh, and hang it off of the Deco if you need more than, in this case, two ports. You can plug into multiples. And again, I mean, it's all going to go over the same backhaul anyway. So decluttering the Wi-Fi realm in that room can help. Your issues, though might be related to having spotty backhaul connection. And in that case, then you either want to move that deco so that it's, you know, a little closer to the, the, the base station unit or put a second one in and do multi multi hop, which is fine, you know, to, to get that happening. So I don't know. That's, those are that, that's how I would head, head down that path. But I would start with exactly what you're asking, plugging things in ethernet and see if it makes better. So I don't know. What do you think, John? <clears throat> Sounds good. Okay. 
right. Uh, you want to take us to Jurgen, John? Ah, uh, yes. <clears throat> um. Oh, and here's a quick one. Yes. Um. Let me just. Yeah. So, uh, Jurgen. Um. Uh, I'm going to guess he's uh, over in Deutschland. Yes. Uh, or Germany. Um. But when I wrote back to him, I wanted to put the umlaut over the U because that's how you spell Jurgen. Yeah. Um, something you could do on the Mac uh, if you hold down pretty much most any key. So in this case, hold down the U key. After a few moments, you're going to see a list of all of the variations oh. uh, with the number below them. Yeah. So if you need to uh, put a special character in something, uh, hold down the, like the same thing. So I think A, you can also maybe put an omelet over. Yeah. So same thing. If I hold down A, I see a list of all the variations with uh, all the different what? marks. What? So. I had no idea. So if I were going to type an umlaut, I thought you were going down the path of uh, do option U because that's the, the key for an umlaut. And then type the letter that you want to be underneath it. Um, mm. And and you can't do like a, an umlaut with a D underneath it, unfortunately. But uh, but you can do like an I or an A, as you pointed out. I had no idea that you could hold down the key. For me, for whatever reason on this computer, when I hold it down, and it may just be the app that I'm in, it puts my my thing all the way down in the corner. But it's fine, and I can then choose by saying, okay, it puts numbers under them, and so I can say four. I want an <laughs> I with an accent, or I don't know, whatever. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Ah, nice little quick tip. All right, you can take us to, to Jurgen. Is that? Yeah, I wonder if that, if that works on iOS as well. Yes. But, uh, oh, it definitely works on iOS. Yeah, if you hold the key down, okay. then you get the, the options. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Didn't know you could do it on the All right, so... Anyways, Jurgen says, up until last week, I got my internet connection via cable. I got the chance to get fiber and signed up for it. Since last week, I now have cable and fiber. I'm thinking about keeping both as to have a backup if one fails. So far, I have two routers for cable, 192.168.whatever.1 and router 2 for fiber, 192.168.whatever.2. I can now set the router on each device on my network to use cable or fiber. Wouldn't it be nice if that switching would be done automatically? I did some research and found that there are routers with two WAN ports. Unfortunately, the two modems are too far away and I would have to go through some trouble to put in some new lines. My next thought was to install router R3 and point my devices to that. So in case one connection fails, I only have to change the route of R3 and not every single device. I have a TP-Link Archer C7 as a spare router and tried to put it in bridge mode, but it's not working. I'm not sure if R3 is the problem or if my strategy is flawed. What would be the correct solution? Is using R3 and R4 and pointing them to R1 and R2 and all my other devices to R3, R4 the correct way? Or are there some other routers that can do some automatic switching, maybe even with load balancing without needing to be connected over WAN? Uh, or is there a software solution? Um, wow. So, um, here's what I came up with. So, um, one thing you could do, though, I don't think this is the best solution. Um, you could bond your two connections in the Mac doing something we'll call link aggregation. 
And that's in System Preferences, Gear Menu, Manage Virtual Interfaces, plus sign New Link Aggregate, and then select the interfaces you want to combine. Um, so I think uh, that there's something wow. else. Now, when he said load balancing, that that um, had me thinking. And so I started searching for uh, devices that would do this and found... Um, uh, yeah, so, so get a box that can combine multiple WAM ports. I remember back in the day when I was doing corporate stuff, we had some F5 load balancers and they still make those, but those are big boy uh, devices or big girl. Um, uh, but I did find an article, top 11 best load balancing routers for Wi-Fi load balancing. So it's not just Wi-Fi. Um, right, right. Yeah, this is the whole one. Kind of inaccurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the article listed some. It listed one from TP-Link, which, which looked pretty good. Um, and it's the TP-Link SafeStream Multi-WAN VPN Router. Okay. Um, so that's one thing. And uh, all of the, the, the devices listed here have... Um, uh, have multiple WAN ports, which which is really what he's doing here. Yeah, right. But then right, this right. caught my eye. The article listed the Synology RT twenty six hundred AC as being able to do this, and I'm like, huh? Yeah, we've talked um, about that here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I I guess I wasn't paying attention, but um, it, it specifically lists in the product description dual WAN capable for load balancing and failover support. So. Even though when you look at the picture of the device, it shows a blue one blue port and four yellow ports, you could actually change the purpose of one of the uh, the blue port being the WAN port and the four yellow ones being your local network ports. But you can change the nature of one of the yellow ports. Um, and you even you even verified this, Dave, and you you showed a screenshot where you can say, I think you can you can do load balance or load balance and failover modes right the, uh, synology that's right yeah and i've i've messed with this a little bit now you're right that you can repurpose port one of the of the first switch and make it your load balance you know a secondary wan if if you have like for what jorgen has that's exactly what you would do right you'd, you'd plug two ethernet mm -hmm. ports and you tell the router and yes you're right it you can choose failover with uh, or failover with load balancing. It's actually it's actually the opposite of what you said. So if it's in failover only mode, it will not do load balancing. It will just use the second connection when the first one fails. And then load balancing also comes with failover because if they're both on, it's not just going to kill it if one of them dies, right? Um, and that works. But you don't have to do it with another Ethernet connection. Uh, although this is getting worse and I'm I'm not sure why Synology is doing this. The Synology routers have Ethernet ports. Uh, sorry. Yes, they have Ethernet ports. They also have USB ports on them. And you can plug a USB dongle or your iPhone or an Android phone via USB into the device. And this is how I've tested it. And use that as your WAN connection. So if you've got, you know, unlimited data, it's not a bad thing. Now, there's a thing on Synology's website that says that they're no longer going to be updating the, the USB drivers that live inside this router. And so it's basically, if it works, great, but it might not work. 
uh, going forward at some point, you know, you, you might not be able to do the, the USB thing the way that you've done it in the past. I have no idea why they would, would hurt this functionality. And it's not entirely clear whether it's all across the board, it's going to be getting worse, or if it's just for the dongles and your phone, maybe they're more, more focusing on phones. I'm not entirely sure about this. I got to, I'm trying to get a straight answer out of them. I haven't gotten it yet, but, um, but yeah, so, so yes, there's that, uh, in the chat room, uh, Sonic wall was mentioned by Brian Monroe as a, as an option that will do, you know, load balancing slash auto failover and that sort of thing with multiple WAN connections. So it is doable really. I mean, what makes the Synology router special is the software that they put into it, right? I mean, it, it has a lot of the same hardware that other four by four dual band routers have. It has it, it has a fast enough CPU though, and enough Ram to be able to run what Synology called calls SRM, which is Synology, Synology router manager. And it's the reason that even though this, what, what now four year old, five year old router is still sitting at the top of many lists of standalone routers. It's certainly at the top of mine. Consumer Reports just this month or maybe end of last month rated the Synology, again, four-year-old, five-year-old router is like, you know, best in class, which just blew me away. It's like, oh, I'm not crazy. Other people see this too. And it's because they put enough RAM and horsepower in it to get us now. Now, it does not support Wi-Fi 6. So will Synology come out with Wi-Fi 6 stuff next year? I sure hope so. But um, but yeah, it's it's all about the software because it's just – you know, it's it's five Ethernet ports and they're VLAN into a switch and a WAN port. But there's nothing saying that if it's not a if it's a programmable switch, which clearly it is, you can say, oh, we'll take that one and do this with it. And there's other things that you can do with it, too. You can dedicate a port for your um, for your VoIP service so that you're getting, you know, quality of service on that one port and treating it a little differently. There's all kinds of things that you can do with the Synology router. But again, it's just software. Um, and this is kind of the reason now that I think about it, John, you know, for years on this show, we were, I was obsessed with, uh, running third-party software on my routers. I would run, you know, it started with tomato, but then it was DD work for years. And that's how we created our sort of quasi meshes initially. And these were just consumer grade routers. And we took the consumer grade software off and we put this, you know, geeky grade uh, software on, and then we're able to do all of these kinds of things. And Didi Wirt, I'm I'm nearly certain allowed me to do would have allowed me to do this kind of thing with it. And then Synology came out with SRM and was like, "Hey, we've got a really nice GUI, and we'll back it up." As opposed to you know your warranty being void the moment you put this software on there, we're with you. You know, and that's why we like Buffalo for so long when they made routers because they supported Didi Wirt on them. They would ship them with Didi Wirt if you wanted. So, so yeah, Synology really saw that need and was like, okay, we want to go after the geeky consumer, but also be usable by the not geeky consumer. So anyway, that it's fascinating to me though. Like obviously. Yeah. So, all right, we should get back to the show. I mean, I know this is all part of the show. We should get back to the agenda. We're still doing the show. It's not like the show ever stops. I don't know. What do you think? Like, we don't have to, but do any, do you have any thoughts on this, John? No, it'd, mm. it'd be nice to have. Yeah. It'd be nice to have multiple connections, but I don't. Yeah. I don't have the option for them here. I look every three months. It's on my calendar. You know, when was the last time I, what, what was it? When did I, I could put it in that too. Mm -hmm. uh, I check with Verizon to see if they've gotten Fios anywhere, you know, near my house. I mean, it's like three miles away, but it's not here. Maybe more than three, maybe like seven, but still it's like, it could, it could happen. 
I mean, I've got a university right there. I, uh, I know there's faster connections here in my town. I want faster upstream. Anyway, uh, I did notice something, though. Uh, I, my daughter at her apartment downtown, uh, you know, right next to the school, they have Comcast for their Internet, just like we do. And they were on and still are on like they didn't their prices didn't change. They were on a 300 down 10 up plan. And when I set it up for them this summer, I was over there. I tested it 300 down 12 up like exactly what you would expect. I happened to log into the router the other day to check something. There was some problem or whatever. And uh, and I did a speed test just to make sure that, you know, things were copacetic. And it was 300 down and 25 up. They doubled they're upstream. I did not know Comcast was doing this. I don't know if they're doing it nationwide. I don't know if it's just hmm. because it's a college campus or near a college campus and they know that the kids are doing, you know, 50% of their classes on Zoom. And when you've got a bunch of kids in the same, you know, on the same pipe, you need, you know, more headroom for, for all those Zoom, simultaneous Zoom calls or whatever. I don't, I don't know if this is everywhere. If you folks know, let us know. Yeah. Interesting. But it's definitely, you know, I, I had her test. I'm like, well, maybe the router's getting it wrong. It's not. Nope. Uh, so Comcast doubles, uh, some upstreams. I, I, mm. they did not double mine, John. I am still at, mm. um, I'm still at 35 or it's 42. I forget what they say it is. I think they say it's 35, but I get 42 on the gigabit connection. I want faster. All right. Uh, speaking of faster, let's, Let's keep moving here. And the next thing I have on the list is uh, from Robin who says, uh, I wonder if you have a solution for a silly problem when traveling. I sometimes don't want my iPad to connect to my MiFi, but to my iPhone's hotspot. I cannot turn off the MiFi as other devices use it. However, as by default, my iPad connects to the MiFi and not the iPhone. I have to go into settings, Wi-Fi and select my hotspot. Is there a quicker way or a shortcut to do this? I can't seem to find a solution. So yeah, um, you if you long press on the Wi-Fi icon in the control center, iPhone, iPad, uh, it will let you select the Wi-Fi network. So you bring up control center, you see the control center, long press on the Wi-Fi icon. And now I think as of iOS 13, iPad OS 13, it will give you a list of all the Wi-Fi networks that are nearby and you can choose that one. Another way of going about this would be to go into settings for Wi-Fi, tap the I next to the, the MiFi network and turn off the auto join. That may not be exactly what you want. You just want to switch to your phone so you don't so that you're connected there. And, and the first method I mentioned is a better, probably a better solution for you. So, yeah, interesting, though. Fun stuff. Thoughts on that, Mr. Braun? No. Okay, cool. Uh, you want to take us to, I think, our final, not our final kind of question of the show, but if we if we get through, assuming we get through this in t less than 20 minutes, we've got some NAS stuff to talk about. So you want to take us to Peter? And actually, Peter, uh, I get to play Peter, and then you get to uh, you get to answer it. So Peter, take it away. Hi, Dave and John. This is Pete from Wisconsin. Pete. I've got an unusual question regarding Wi-Fi network security, the contacts app, and trying not to get caught. A while back, Apple put in a wonderful feature into the contacts and iCloud system where if someone was in your contacts, you would be able to easily share 
a Wi-Fi password with them if they were attempting to get onto a network to which you had access. Really, really great when friends and family come over to visit. Not so great when it leaves a gaping hole in your uh, your church's Wi-Fi security. Was informed today of a amusing and slightly paranoia-inducing anecdote where uh, a gentleman was working on one of the Macs we have in-house here and decided to see if he could get on the secure Wi-Fi. Well, he was able to by putting his name and an iCloud email address into the contacts app on that particular Mac. And when he tried to access our secure Wi-Fi, the Mac helpfully helpfully said, do you want to share the Wi-Fi password? He said yes, and suddenly all his devices were able to access our secure internal network. Obviously a bit of an issue. A little bit of Google foo turned up no decent leads on how to disable either the contacts app on the Mac, uh, disable being able to add contacts uh, within a user, or disabling the feature that allows you to share or automatically pops up with the share a Wi-Fi password uh, with someone in your contacts. And so I turn to you two and your infinitely greater experience and wisdom. I'm hoping you or somebody in your community would be able to help out with this. Thanks, and here's where you cut me off. And I've cut him off, John. All right. Um, all right, I think there's a way. Uh, but here's a few thoughts on what's happening here. So one, it sounds like the person has access to the Mac. Um, and I think Apple's, and access to the iCloud account, more importantly. Um, I think Apple's thinking is that if if that's the case, then the user already has access to your network. So it's okay to share the password. So just just to speculate on, on their thinking. Um, I do like the idea of restricting access to the contacts app, but I couldn't find an easy way to do it, like changing the permissions on it to read only or something like that. Yeah. Um, when I tried it, it said the operation can't be completed because you don't have the necessary permissions. Now, uh, usually when I see this message, uh, if you disable SIP, that may uh, let you get around it. But um, So that was another thought. Then I actually found Apple's uh, article here, and I think this is the direction you want to go, Dave. Um, so they have an article, How to Share Your Wi-Fi Password from Your iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch. Um, but the feature, Dave, which uh, caught my eye here. So the feature requires one to be signed into their iCloud account. I'll assume to use iCloud Keychain, but also requires both Wi-Fi and Bluetooth to be enabled. So I'm wondering if creating an account for this person to use that doesn't have access to your iCloud or where Bluetooth is turned off would be a way to shut this feature down. Um, the other thing I found, which... Um, Although not a uh, total security solution, uh, several people in the articles I saw suggested um, a Mac-based media access control or hardware address, uh, whitelist or blacklist, whatever, would be another way to keep people off of your Wi-Fi in that only let... And a lot of routers allow that. If I recall, Dave, uh, Apple and TP-Link... Um, would let you explicitly enter the MAC addresses of the devices you wanted to permit. Um, Eero does it a little different, is that once something is connected to Eero, um, you can block them. Mm, so, so it's a blacklist, not a whitelist. Yeah, or a, a deny right, as opposed right, to an right. allow list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So I think the key here is that iCloud is the mechanism where this happens. So uh, I think the conclusion was try to uh, disable iCloud keychain or again, just don't have that particular machine or, or that particular user accessing your iCloud. Um, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it. so, I mean, this problem would happen if like, if you or me were invited to their scenario, right? Like, let's say we were both invited, but they said, uh, John, we don't trust Dave. So, um, we're only going to give you access to the Wi-Fi, but, and don't, you know, but, but it's fine. So they give you access and then, uh, maybe they don't tell you that they're trying to block it from me. Right. But so they give you access. They don't tell you that, that I shouldn't have it. And now, you know, you have become network administrator because you can share with anyone, you know, because you and I have, you know, we have each other in each other contacts. At least I presume we do. You're in mine. I don't know if I'm in yours. So maybe, maybe you have me blocked on your phone or something. I don't know. Uh, but, but if you didn't, you know, assuming we're both in there, then yeah, it's going to ask you if you want to share. Uh, and I've had this happen at like when I met at the theater, right. Where, uh, if I'm working or even if I'm watching a show or whatever, but there's a, uh, you know, an internal Wi-Fi network that's only used by the staff of the theater. And of course I use it because I'm there and I, I work and, you know, and I've been, I've even been on stage and seen it say, Hey, do you want to share the Wi-Fi password with so-and-so? And it's like, I really probably shouldn't do that. You know, because if I hit share, it's going to send the credentials up to them. Uh, but yeah, it is iCloud keychain is at the core of all of this. And there is an, an, other than your, I like your idea of, you know, have that machine not signed into iCloud that doesn't really solve the problem a, a, you know, an allow list versus a deny list of your Mac addresses is absolutely a good way to go. If your router supports that another good way to go, if your router supports it is to have certificates, not just using password but have, uh, you know, a cert that needs to be installed on the device. And a lot of enterprise routers do this. You get this at a lot of uh, enterprise scenarios, right, where, you know, you log in to their their thing, you download a cert, that cert is now on your device, and that, you know, that cert will not be shared across uh, across this mechanism. So that would be, that would be one right. way to do it. Yep. Um, it, yeah, in, actually, our um, uh, our the the, the Wi Fi that my ISP offers actually uses that. I think right. it's called WPA. Uh, yeah, WPA Enterprise. Yep. And the first time I tried to connect to it, it's like, hey, you, you, you here's a cert um, for you to add, so you can then get get on the network. Yeah, one trick is Comcast does this too. I think they've all sort of standardized on one so that users can roam on each other's. But uh, with Comcast, the cert puts in the three Wi-Fi networks that Comcast allows, which is fine, and your credentials. Uh, if you don't have that certificate on Comcast and you know your credentials, you can log in to the secure Xfinity network by putting in your Comcast email as your username and your Comcast email password as your password. You do not need the cert from them. It's easier with the cert. Uh, assuming it's actually easier, but if you need to get connected, then you can just do that. And I've, and that's worked fine for me. So yeah, that's another way to do it. Yeah. I like it. All right. Let's uh, another, go, go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, last, or here's one more point. So yeah. uh, another suggestion would 
be to get a thing box. Why do I say that? Oh, my friend Barry was over. He wanted to, uh, uh, our friend Barry was over here. Um, I shared, you know, uh, my password with him because I sure wanted to let him on the network. Um, no sooner did I share that password, I got a notification um, that uh, a device, there was a new device on, on, on the network. Um, Fing will let you manage or boot them off if you want to. So what, whenever it sees a new device, it'll come up and say, hey, you want to manage this or, or deal with this? Right. And I could have said no. <laughs> yeah, right. You could, yeah, you could, yeah, you can decline that. Oh, I like it. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, are we good on this one? We have some questions yes. about uh, network storage, uh, mostly Synology, because that's the best network storage devices for for people like us, us, you know, and us sort of, you know, consumer, prosumer, geek range. Uh, this, this is it. So anyway, uh, Andrew asks, uh, I just downloaded Synology Assistant for my Mac a few minutes ago. And when I attempt to open it, it tells me that it cannot be opened and to contact the developer. And so we got him opening it uh, because it, I think it's a non-signed app. And so with any non-signed apps, this is this part of this is not about networking at all. Uh, you can go, if you double click it, it will tell you I can't launch. If you right click it, like go in the finder, go to applications, right click the app, choose open. I know it seems like the same thing, but this shows an intention and you get a different option in the dialogue, which is open it anyway or something along those lines. And it will allow you to open the app and then it will remember that you allowed this app and you'll never have to think about it again. So that's how you open this app. However, uh, Synology has a way of finding all the Synology devices on a local network, regardless of whether uh, you have this app or not. And it is simple. You just go to find.synology.com and that will scan your really what it does is it looks at what other Synology devices have have registered with the same IP address as the one from which you're coming, right? So your local network has one IP and it will find it. Or in the case of IPv6, I think it looks for anything in your range and it will tell you, yeah, here's the things on your local network. Um, and, you know, when I launch it, I see my disk station and my router and yeah, it's good stuff. So that's how you find a Synology disk station. John, you want to take us to, unless you have any thoughts about that, you want to take us to Neil? Mm. Yes. All right. Uh, Neil says, for the past few weeks, I have been having a problem with my Synology no longer being available to Bonjour or ZeroConf, if you prefer. My Synology is named Gluon, so I should be able to connect to it or ping it as gluon.local. Okay. Um, but that will simply fail at least once a week. If I reboot the Synology, all works as it should for a time thereafter. Today, I SSH'd into the Synology when it was not properly responding and did a PS space aux space bar space grep space AVAHI. Um, and it showed that the uh, daemon was running but not working. 
after rebooting, I got the exact same response to this, so it doesn't look like there was a process missing. I looked into var log and found a bunch of messages um, uh, from AVAHI uh, that were complaining about an IPv6 change. Um, hmm. So I don't know if that was part of it. He's he's on an arrow. Um, uh, I'm, my thinking is to wait until the next time I find uh, the, the the local address doesn't work, and at that point check the log files, see if there are any different messages. So um, nice work. And uh, first off, I didn't know up until now what AVAHI is. Um, and that's the uh, Linux. Uh, uh, process that handles zero conf. Um, and it sounds like he knows where to look uh, when it's failing. The only thing I could suggest, uh, I mean, one, you know, maybe talk to Synology. They, they may have a bug. I don't know. Um, but I do recall having an issue with their service in the past when doing time machine and that it couldn't find whatever.local, but it was able to find it if. Um, I use the IP address. So that's one suggestion. And pre I pretty much exclusively access my Synologies by IP address, and hmm. not, the, uh, not the name. Um, and I'm also curious what protocol you're using. I've had issues with using AFP. So you may want to limit things to SMB and see if maybe that would help. And that's control panel file services. And there's SMB, AFP, and NFS. Um, there's also some ways you can tweak the aspects of the protocol. So that may be another place to look. Hmm. So, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah. It, so it, I'm, I'm seeing in the, at least in the Wikipedia article about Avahi, that it is similar. It is a zero conf uh, engine, but it is not just another name for bonjour. Uh, it says Avahi's performance resembles that of bonjour, sometimes even exceeding it. However, Avahi can lose services when managing large numbers of requests simultaneously. So it sounds like maybe there's, you know, at some level of network traffic or whatever it, it, you know, it stops participating. I, I think it would also I don't know how much the router, I guess the router doesn't have anything to do with this, but um, I've always thought it did, but maybe not. Yeah. Maybe that's the point of, of this. I, I, I have experienced this issue, not just with Synology stuff, but with others too. The dot local things work until they don't. And then they don't until they do again. <laughs> and that that's frustrating to me. So I assigned names in my routers, DNS server, to all of my devices, not just my, um, not just my disk stations, but my computers, everything gets a name. Now, some of them, the name is inherited by the DHCP server. If you go in, you know, you go into system preferences, uh, sharing, you can put a name there for computer name, right? And that name is passed along to the DHCP server. So if, you know, it will in many cases, uh, do this. So I assign a, uh, to my DHCP server, I signed a, a you know, a, a network name. I called it internal.network. Don't ask me why I did two things. I, it was a decision I made a long time ago when I didn't really understand this stuff. But anyway, 
my my local network is called internal.network. So if I want to get to my iMac in the office, I go iMacoffice.internal.network and boom, it's there. It's doing a DNS lookup with the router. So if the router's offline for some reason, then it's not going to find it. Then I need to try and use the dot local thing, which which yeah, I guess does not use the router. Um, but this way I, you know, I never have any issues. I don't even think about using dot local. Um, and although I guess sometimes I probably do because at times I will, I will say like ping space iMac studio, and I don't much care whether it looks for iMac studio dot local or iMac studio dot internal dot network. So long as it finds it. Um, and, and that often works. So in fact, it almost always works. So, yeah, so that's that's another way around this is just add it to your to your router, man, and and stop worrying about Avahi. So I don't know. I, I know that's not the the fix, but it is the it's the, the it's the fix of the symptom, not of the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, how are we doing here? Uh, we get we, one more because it's the, this is a, this is one of those important topics, in my opinion. Um Mike writes, he says, uh, my couple year old Synology DS918 plus got caught by lightning yesterday. Everything else plugged into that surge suppressor was fine. Perhaps some nastiness came through the ethernet. Yep. Regardless, no lights at all, except the green light on the external power brick is lit, but I am unable to power on the unit. It may need a new power supply or the unit itself may be dead. In the interest of time, I'd like to throw some money at this and purchase an identical unit. Can I take the drives out of this old Synology, put them in the new one in the same order, flip the switch, and no one would be the wiser? Says I most likely have backups of everything, um, but uh, I'd like to essentially replace the box and go back and sign. What, what go back in time? What say you? So yeah, the Synology stations are good like this. I recently migrated, you know, from the uh, from the the Synology that I had to the new one. And I'm pulling up the model number because I can't remember. I think it's a 1520 plus is, is what I'm running now. I should have left that screen up, the find.synology.com screen, John, because that would have told me what I had, but I, I pulled it down. But uh, but yeah, I migrated from the 1019 plus to the DS1520 plus. They are both five bay units. As long as I had enough bays for my drives, they don't have to be the same size. You can go from a two bay unit to an eight bay unit. You can go from an eight bay unit to a five bay unit. As long as you're only moving five discs. Once you do that, as, as Mike said, you move the discs in order. So disc number one goes to disc number one, disc number two to disc number two. You understand the process here. Yep. Uh, you put them in, you boot it up. It will notice this. It won't just boot up and, and be like nothing happened. You will have to go to the web interface and tell it, yes, it's cool. What I just did is what I meant to do. Yes, inherit this volume and all of the settings essentially become my old disk station. And then it will, oftentimes I find it downloads the new version of the software or a, another version, a, another copy of the same version of the software, probably specific to your unit. It does whatever it needs to do. It reboots once and then boom, you're up and running. You might want to go into package center, and make sure all of the apps that you have on there are up to date and actually launched. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But uh, by and large, you're looking at, you know, I found it to be probably a 40 minute process. I, I, I was going to say 30, but I feel like, yeah, it might be a little longer than that while you're waiting for it to boot the two times. So think of, think, give yourself an hour and you'll have time to make a sandwich. So, uh, so there you go. Yeah. The, um, but I'd buy a UPS to put your disk station on. Um, 
I love the APC ones, but we've been using the Amazon basics ones here uh, in the house too. We have lots of them. We put all of our electronics on them, TVs, routers, disc stations, Macs. They are all on UPSs. Uh, not only does that protect you from, you know, this, but it conditions the power and we found our electronics last a long time around here. Maybe we're just lucky, but I really think it has to do with the fact that, that they are all getting conditioned power when power fluctuates. It really messes with those, um, those power converters and, uh, and, you know, causes heat to, to generate. So I think there's probably something to it to give things nice, clean power all the time. Even if you never have uh, brownouts, you know, cleaning out the power is good and you probably do have brownouts and just don't know it. So, um, and the cool part with the disk station is if you get a UPS that has a USB connection, you can plug the disk station into it, and have just like you can with your Mac and have the device shut down when, um, when it knows that it's about to run out of juice, which is nice. So I don't know. Any thoughts on any slash all of that, Mr. Braun? I think this is our last one for today. Unfortunately, you know, just how it goes, but any, uh, any thoughts on any of that? Nope. No. <clears throat> all right. Well, then it's time. Do you, have you, have you joined the UPS realm yet, John? No, I recommend it. It's fun. Makes life easy. Plus it's cool. You know, you can have your devices shut down. I got to figure out mm -hmm. if you have like you would the way you have your just logically the way you have your setup there, you could have one UPS that that ran your router, your Mac mini, your switch and your disk station. Mm hmm. You could only plug either the disk station or the Mac into the the UPS via USB, not both. I wonder, mm -hmm. I know that like if you plug your disk station in and you have a second disk station, it can get its cues from your disk station and know like, oh, okay, I should like the second disk station can know it'll shut down. I wonder if there's a way to run that kind of engine on the Mac, you know? To, to like subscribe to network power events over there on that thing. I don't know. So, hmm. yeah, because the Synologies can do it. It's super easy. It's right there in the, um, where is it? If I go into control panel, uh, energy, power, what is it? Uh, hardware and power. And I go to UPS. I can enable UPS support and enable network UPS server. And then, yes, hmm. by IP address, you allow things but i wonder if like other computers can join a synology's network ups server all right well we gotta like i said we were done with the show but we'll we'll research this if any of you know let us know we would love to hear from you and if you're a premium contributor use the premium address premium at macgeekgab.com we love to be able to prioritize your questions even though we really do i think this week we got to everything that came in this week i think there's still some stuff from last week that we didn't get to but we will uh, but, uh, but we, you know, we prioritize the premium stuff because, and that stuff we always get to because, you know, it's, it's how it goes. So premium at MacKeyCap.com. Love to, love to hear from you, but we'd love to hear from all of you and really thank you for all of your questions and tips and cool stuff found that you sent in. This is what makes the MacKeyCap family work. And we love being a part of the MacKeyCap family. We really, we are a part of it just like all of you are. Um, you know, we are, we are the stewards of this, but but it is, it is, it belongs to all of us for sure. And, uh, and it's awesome to be a part of it with all of you. So thank you for everything. It's great. Ah, John, you have any, uh, 
anything to share before we uh, record this thing and, and get out of here? No. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks for your reviews at macgeekup.com slash reviews. We would love to see more of those come in. You can edit an old review if you've already reviewed us. That's totally okay. Thanks to Cashfly, as I mentioned. In fact, thanks to all of our sponsors, including Riedel, as we said in the episode, Barebone Software, Smile at smilesoftware.com slash podcast. Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com, Eero.com slash MGG, Lino.com slash MGG with the extra hundred bucks. It's awesome. Or the, the, the hundred bucks. It's not an extra. It's three hundred bucks. Credit over there. Oh, check it all out. Go check out Riedel's stuff too. I, I'm digging back in. I'm loving it. It's good. We will see you all on Tuesday. The extra episode this week, which is nice because it's 838. The, the, the palindrome episodes always make me feel so mm -hmm. at peace. So that's good. All right. Uh, John, anything before we, uh, before we play us out of here? Anything, any last thoughts? Um, yes. My last thought, probably not for the day, but my last thought for now, Dave, is don't get caught. Made up.